Millennial Falcon, a pop culture podcast by three geeky millennials. I'm Anya Crittenden, associate editor at The Tracking Board, and this week I am joined by my two co-hosts and a special guest. Why don't you guys say hi? Hi, I'm Mai Shen Bui, a writer for Slash Film and a pop culture journalist in D.C. And I'm Willoughby Dobbs, a filmmaker in the D.C. area. And our guest for the week is the returning Mike. Hi, I'm Mike Solon. You don't even get a lot. You're just Mike. Oh, it's like Cher or Madonna. I, I don't even get to say my name. Uh, I'm just Mike. <laughs> <laughs> no, Mike. Introduce yourself, Mike. Name, okay. Introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Mike Solingill. I'm a social scientist in the Washington, D.C. area. And if you listened to this podcast last time, I'm a lover of monster films. And I'm excited to be here again. He's a friend excited of the to have pod. You. He's a friend of the pod. Friend of the pod, yes. Very exciting to have him back. Um, so today we will be talking about the phenomenon of franchises picking indie directors to direct their big blockbuster films. And this has been something that's been going on for the past five years, I guess. I'd, I'd say. say at least since 2010. Mm-hmm. Like since the main, since the the, the modern movie like superheroes and franchises really have come into gear yes so it's a really interesting trend that we've been seeing more nowadays because we see like these big uh industry directors who see themselves and these young rising indie directors and basically pluck them out of obscurity and give them a star wars or jurassic park or a superhero movie um we're going to be talking about the pros and cons of that and also talking about the recent news of kind of one of these instances backfiring. Um, they, this is about Christopher Lord and Phil, oh, sorry, Phil Lord and Christopher Miller. <laughs> oh my goodness. Lord and Miller. Lord and Miller, um, who were slated to direct the Han Solo prequel movie, um, one of the standalone films that Star Wars does in between their main films. And, um, they're not exactly obscure indie directors, but they're lesser known than, say, a Spielberg. And um, it didn't really go well. Uh, Willoughby, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? So, from what I can gather, um, Lord and Miller were doing their own thing on set. You know, they're very loosey-goosey with their, with their like, <laughs> takes and their, like, control over the set. You know, you know the alternative takes and... A lot of filming and whatnot, and a lot of like fun, like funny jokes that are probably not super in line with the franchise as we know it. And as far as I can tell, Kathleen Kennedy did not approve of that, and she wanted the, the Han Solo movie taken in a more probably closer direction to what the other movies have been like. Um, and you know, this is a real bummer of news because I really love Lord Miller, and they've been on the project since. November of 2015 I want to say like it was it's oh, been almost nice. two years if they've been in development they announced the they were directing and they announced the script at the same time like they and also the idea of the movie all at once like they really just went ahead. they had locked down the directors the writers not the actors but basically everything else and they were just you know even as as recently they began filming I think in February and we saw that group picture of them in the in the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon, all looking all happy and whatnot. Except for Don Glover, he had a knowing look on his face. <laughs> <laughs> I'm reading into it, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. And then, um, and then, uh, according to sources that I'm not entirely sure how close they are, but they're saying that they only had three weeks left of principal photography, which is incredible because they've been on shoot for four months, and then now they've been. Uh, taken off the film. Ron Howard has been brought up on board. He's a solid, competent director who's won an Oscar, and he's got plenty of beloved films like Apollo 13, and like he and he's been he you know he and Lucasfilm are closely tied. Uh, he was he starred in American Graffiti, which is directed by George Lucas right before he did Star Wars. Basically, the proto model of Luke Skywalker. Um, and he took that character or a similar character to Happy Days and then he started directing movies he directed Willow for Lucasfilm uh, and then he direct he almost directed Phantom Menace uh, back in 1997 oh I didn't he know that yeah he was approached to direct The Phantom Menace and he said no George Lucas you should do it because it's your movies and all the worse off for it Ron Howard got, probably could have done amazing work 
And so, you know, he's had a string he, he's had a string of higher budget films that have not been as widely praised as as his earlier work. Like Rush I've heard is underrated. The Da Vinci Code movies have been kind of hit or miss. <laughs> um and the Moby Dick prequel movie that isn't really a prequel but like in a the basis for the, the story sea, of Moby Dick right? in, in the heart of the sea yeah. that I heard was okay so Ron, Ron Howard's competent like and he's much more of a journeyman director and like he has he has style and panache but then it's not over and I think yeah. that's what but he's also not the kind of director that Lord, like he's been around a while, right? He he's been around. He's, he's very established. He's, he's been not definitely part of the old guard of Hollywood that Kathleen Kennedy is part of. Right. And you know they're reliable and they know what they're doing. Whereas Phil and Lord are kind of part of this new guard that don't exactly abide by whatever you know franchise rules have been set in place. So, which is kind of, in my opinion, it's kind of ironic considering that a lot of these franchise these producers and directors came out of new hollywood mm-hmm. which was a backlash to the studio system right. so it's almost this weird new wave of s- franchises standing in for studios and we are the kind of doing system. a return to the old studio system which i think is yeah interesting. mgm is going to make a comeback mm-hmm. <laughs> no, <laughs> they were they're out anya what um, were you gonna say um, I was going to say we should note that Lord and Miller did not write the Han Solo film, and right. that is p- where part of the problem stemmed is that they started straying from Lawrence Kasdan's script. Lawrence Kasdan is, you know, Lucasfilm, like... And his son was, is on um, the script, too. Uh, Lucasfilm veteran wrote Empire Strikes Back and has written multiple Star Wars films, wrote Force Awakens. So they started straying from that, and now there's also a report that Alden Ehrenreich, who's playing Han Solo, were also, was also unhappy with Lord and Miller... Um, the report has it that they were starting to go in a sort of Ace Ventura tone and style for Han Solo, which is decidedly not who Han Solo is. That would have been an interesting so, take. <laughs> I would have loved to see um, those dailies. So I yeah, I am. I've written. I wrote about this this week. Um, in that kind of like, if you want to play in the sandbox, you got to play by the rules, sort of thing. Um, and I feel that pretty strongly with franchises like Marvel, Star Wars, anything that's a shared universe, that's a big IP. Um, and I really hate this idea that, like, oh, but, like, Kathleen Kennedy should have known what she was gotten into when she hired Lord and Miller. They're, like, fast and loose comedy directors. And I'm like, no, they're two grown-ass adults who were hired to do a job and couldn't do it well enough. I think End there's of story. I think there's some credence to that argument though because there is a reason that she hired them and their reverence yeah, is it's very too, prominent. It's to direct a fun movie mm-hmm. not to completely go against what the universe is. Like right. there was a report in, in Entertainment Weekly that said Kathleen Kennedy hired Lord and Miller to bring a comedic a comedic element to the film. Lord and Miller thought they were being hired to direct a comedy film. Mm. Yeah, I think that's... That's where the disconnect comes in, because, the, like, I when I was... When I heard, first heard the news that they were brought on board, I was excited because I really like their filmmaking style. It's very kinetic and very fun, and, like, they keep the pace up very well. And, like, with, like, an adventure film that I'm assuming the Han Solo movie's gonna be, like, they can direct the action well, and, like, it, it'll probably have humor to it. I was disappointed to learn that they were, like, making, like, a movie that was, like, not a part of the universe. Um, and I, it, it just seems like, I'm just wondering how closely the relationship between Kathleen Kennedy and Lord Miller was, like, on set. Like, like what, like, they've been, well, just, like, the fact that they've, you know, they've been working together for two years. Yeah, but apparently and... it was not great from the start. And if it was boiling to now, like there's like there obviously there had there had to be there had to have been a can a, a straw that broke the camel's back, mm-hmm. like this like that had that must have happened like on a day on filming and she was like she put her foot down and said okay no this these guys have got to go because this isn't just a decision you make lightly this is you know they are obviously the directors of a major motion picture that's going to make a billion bucks and that. You know, they obviously had to have a director in place waiting in the wings to replace them. Like, Ron Howard was chosen not even 48 hours after. So, like, obviously, this has been in the works. 
And it just yeah, seems well, interesting. I mean, I think you're right. This is a decision that's not taken lightly. And I think the idea that people are throwing criticism Kathleen Kennedy's way is absurd. Like, the idea that Kathleen Kennedy would want to make anything less than a great film, someone who has been the president of Lucasfilm since 2012, someone who brought Star Wars back after the prequels, someone who knows this franchise so well, the idea that she would do this lightly and not consider it, and the fact that she's receiving all this criticism, which is bordering on sexism, let's be real, woman in power, (laughs) is absurd. Like, I trust Kathleen Kennedy with this franchise. Yeah. Mike, what were you going to say? Yeah. No, I was just going to, you know, reiterate my agreement, especially with what Anya is saying. Um, Lord and Miller, I believe that they're talented directors with a very distinctive vision, and I enjoy their style a lot. I was really excited when they were brought onto Han Solo. But they were brought in to make a Star Wars film, not a Lord and Miller film. Right. Yes. (laughs) That's job hunting 101. I've been in a position where, you know, we interview someone, and before they actually start the job, it does seem like our visions align. I mean, people say Kathleen Kennedy should have known better. For all we know, during those initial development meetings, when they're going over storyboards, prevision, um, script writing, Lord and Miller probably did present a vision that was in line with what Kathleen Kennedy and Lucasfilm wanted, and they were incredibly enthusiastic and eager to go forward. And yes, there may have been hurdles um, when they started filming, but just like when you're a supervisor and you're working with a new employee, you're like, okay, they will, it will eventually come together and they'll get over those hurdles, but apparently it persisted. And not only did it persist, but I know some of those reports, if you want to take Hollywood gossip at face value, but Lord and Miller felt that, you know, because they already had been around the block, they had enough clout to, you know, resist interference from Kathleen Kennedy. Because remember, the same thing happened with Gareth Edwards when he got in a bit too over his head on Rogue One. Gareth Edwards played ball and let Kathleen Kennedy take over. They brought in that other director. And, Tony you know, Gilroy. Yeah, and so Rogue One was, it turned out fine and commendable. Um, Lord and Miller is like, you know, your boss hired you for a job. They're telling you what needs to be done to make a product that is to the satisfaction of what you were hired for. And if you're going to actively resist the boss, then unfortunately, the chopping block is coming down. Mm-hmm. And I guess Lord and Miller, they already knew that because I know the rap was reporting that they had even met with Warner Brothers about returning back to the Flash and the DCEU franchise so mutually it was an unhappy relationship I'm actually really glad that Ron Howard is being brought in I know there are some critiques that you know he's too traditional he's too boring of a choice it's like that's exactly what they need to salvage this production at this at this point a competent director who more importantly he knows the vision that Lucasfilm wants. He knows exactly what makes a good Star Wars film, so I have faith in Ron Howard. Yeah. Completely, I could we not We trust in Ron Howard. Like. <laughs> in Ron Howard. In yeah. Ron Howard, we trust. I've never been completely impressed by Ron Howard, but I think that he'll do a fine job uh, stringing this movie together. Um, I think that the unusual thing about this uh, is that they were fired so late in the game. Yeah. And I was talking to some coworkers about this, and they said that a lot of comedy movies are made in the edit bay, and oh, yeah. hence the reason that like this was making Kathleen Kennedy worried because you know they may have been making doing a lot of different takes, a lot of different shots, and then just making the film like finding the film as they edit it together. So that might have been why it happened now before they could get into the editing process. And that's why I think this movie is still salvageable because in the edit and, and probably some reshoots, like they'll be able to go ahead and take... They probably... Lord Miller, you know, they probably did, like, a straight take and then, like, an alternative wacky take. Mm -hmm. And they probably did, like, a lot of those. And that's probably, probably, like, we're behind schedule and probably over budget. Like, that was probably a lot of... There's probably some financial reasons to this, too. Because when you're on set, that's costing money. And if they're on set doing, like, alternative takes and, like, loosey-goosey shit, that can take a lot of time. And time is money in the filmmaking business. Mm-hmm. And Especially so in this is probably this is obviously a creative decision by Kathleen Kennedy, but it was also a financial decision probably. This, you know, this is that's the more sterile cynical take out of it, but it's probably a little bit more than just creative. There's probably they probably were over budget. Right. Yeah, I think we should also note that like like Mike said, like Lord and Miller are talented directors. I like what they've done before. They've worked with franchise before, but in those cases the franchise needed to be reinvented. Yeah. Like in Star Wars, you're not reinventing anything. You're just keeping in line with what Star Wars is because it's 
already successful at what it's doing. And I think, you know, there's room for Lord and Miller's style, but this is not it because, as Mike said, they're making a Star Wars film and the universe is much bigger than Lord and Miller. I think there's room for voices in shared universes. Like, you have Shane Black's Iron Man 3, which fits well in the MCU, but does feel like a Shane Black film. You know, Kenneth Branagh's Thor, as we've raved about, very Shakespearean, yes. <laughs> like, feels like an MCU film. Even you know? the, Russo, the Russo brothers with Winter Soldier, it's very much a 70s conspiracy thriller. Right. Yeah, but I don't know if we can tell that that's the Russo, say, like, brothers, Russo brothers thing. Like, yeah. We don't really know them. <laughs> that's so true. That's you can't true. really, like, say it's a director thing. Well, um, they did go from community to... Yeah, so I yeah, would say so... that, like, Winter Soldier was very much, like, community. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, like, well, so, I, like, I, meant in ter- I... I just meant in terms of, like, these franchise films can have films that have a different style to other films yeah. within mm-hmm. the same franchise. But I feel like with Star Wars, they probably weren't going in that direction. Because, like, you could have had, like, you could have a Western, or you could have, like, on Tatooine, or you could have, like, a gangster film on Nar Shaddaa, or, like, somewhere else. Like, like these planets are in the Star Wars galaxy you could do different genres but if that's not what they want to do then that's what they should that's that's not what they should be doing which is a I guess that what I'm saying is that they could if Kathleen Kennedy so desired they could have done a comedy film in the Star Wars universe and it could be still Star Wars but that's not what she wanted she wanted a Star Wars film with probably more humor than normal yeah and I think it's interesting that Ryan Johnson who is directing The Last Jedi uh, tweeted that he has had as much creative control over The Last Jedi as en- every other film that he's made. Mm, which yeah. basically like, yeah. just translates to Ryan Johnson is willing to play ball with Lucasfilm mm. and they're working together instead right. of clashing. And he probably also has a vision more in line with the Star Wars universe you know, than probably Lord Miller did. Right. So should we move on to a lar- the larger topic at hand of these indie directors coming into franchises and kind of either shitting the bed or doing really well? Yeah, let's do that. Um, <laughs> so the biggest instances I can think of are um, Colin Trevorrow and the, <laughs> Jurassic, <laughs> the Jurassic Park one. It's, it's, and also, um, oh, was it Josh Trank? Yeah. Yeah, Josh Trank. So it's interesting because they there are big failures like that. I will argue that Jurassic World was a big failure because I didn't. That was not a good movie. It's a garbage film. Yeah, it, it's it's a dumpster fire of a failure because it's critically panned, but it made a billion and billion dollars. It's Batman v Superman, <laughs> but for Universal. Um. So yeah, but it's a trend that's going to be keep going to keep happening because where. I don't. I'm not sure. Like, what, what would you say? This is the reason that they like to poach these indie directors and bring them in to uh, helm these franchises. Money. They can pay them less. <laughs> well, there's that. There's definitely that. It's I, their the current economy business, made Hollywood. Right. The current, the cynical business side of things. <laughs> Hollywood is a business. It, Hollywood is a business, and I, and I will bring in a filmmaker's perspective and say that when you like like directors like directors who are who have like a certain style and a certain like they you know if they're good at what they do and they're like if their movies are critical darlings but they maybe not have made a lot of money they probably are always on the lookout for these like indie directors and like, oh, they have a good vision. Let's bring them on board. And a lot of times, these movies, it depends on how much the director has a style to it. Because I feel like you get, I, we we can talk about Edgar Wright and how he lost, not lost, but like how Ant Man and him that you know they, parted ways, he, right. parted ways with Marvel, essentially for very similar reasons that happened with Lord and Miller. But they that happened early in the in the development stage, not by production which is good um or i guess part of the script i'm not entirely sure on the on the facts on that but you know you get a you get a director who has such style and you know obviously with franchises and shared universes they try to keep them like contained stylized like like a similar style to each each other you know if they find a formula that works they're going to keep going at it and so then you you bring in 
indie directors who are quote unquote great and they have great little indie movies. They're like, we can bring this this guy on board to a major motion picture franchise and he'll give some flavor to the movies. We'll see what happens. And more frequently than not, these movies don't pan out well. Um, it's the like Josh... a 50 50 yeah. chance on it. Yeah, it's a like it, yeah. It's a crapshoot because like, you get Josh Trank, who Chronicle I really liked. I liked what it was. I liked this. I liked the fact that it was different than these. The other, I mean, it obviously, wasn't a superhero movie, but it was like a movie about these kids getting superpowers. And they're like, well, "Why don't you do that?" But with the Fantastic Four, and lose the found footage bullshit, and then <laughs> it turned into a mess. And then you get Colin Trevorrow, which I liked personally. I liked Safety Guaranteed. I know Anya didn't, and. I was excited for Jurassic World because of that reason. And then he did a bullshit job. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, well, now maybe he's good at indie director, indie films and his his fran- you know, franchises he can't do it. And then he made the book of Henry. <laughs> <laughs> and so basically like I've lost all goodwill for Colin Trevorrow. Good luck which for is, which episode. is which is which is personally I'm sad about cuz yeah. I cuz I like I liked safety not guaranteed it was it was interesting it was different and then the book of henry just looks like a mess so i'm not excited for jurassic world 2 which i think is called fallen kingdom yeah, but he's, not <laughs> it. he's not directing it but i think he's part of the he's producing produ- it and pro- j.a bon- um, bonia bonia the guy who did a monster By- calls in yeah. the impossible yeah, yeah. he actually I mean, seems like a fine director yeah so yeah. we'll see how that turns um, out but like he's definitely invo- he's like heavily involved with the, that process, you know. He's like. But more importantly, he's directing Star Wars Episode Nine. There's <laughs> that too. That's the which big is really <laughs> this is really funny considering the fact that over the weekend when Book of Henry was released, we, everyone was talking about why can't we get rid of Colin Trevorrow and put on someone else for Episode Nine, and then like literally like a day later after all that, all those tweets. Star Wars is like, yeah, we're dropping Lord and Miller. <laughs> and everyone's like, you took the wrong person out. Or not really, but like... No, yeah, they didn't. <laughs> well, like, the, the joke was that, oh, you took you the wrong one. directors. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I... Um, I think that, yeah, directing... Taking an indie director and giving him or her, most likely him, um, a franchise is a crapshoot. And it's worked in some cases. It has not worked... In a lot of cases. So do you guys and think there are benefits to it? Outside of just being a cheaper paycheck for the studios and allowing them greater control because the indie directors don't have much experience working in blockbuster franchises and thus won't have a lot of say. I mean, I think it is nice to bring kind of like fresh new voices mm-hmm. to things. Like, you know, we don't want the same six directors right. helming everything. Like, it's boring real right. fast um, but I why aren't we taking more female indie directors mm-hmm. and giving them blockbusters like why is it only men primarily sexism. white men as well sexism, sexism and racism <laughs> I mean yeah but yeah yeah. and it's well it's the case of what happened with Spielberg and Trevorrow Spielberg saw Trevorrow and himself and said I'm gonna make you the next me and then that didn't work I heard it was Brad Bird who recommended Trevorrow I've heard other things. I've but heard I'm of not Spielberg, who was like, "Oh, I see you, and I, I heard, see myself." That's yeah. interesting. I the heard Spielberg Brad Bird quote definitely because like Colin Trevorrow was on, I think it was Happy Sad Confused a couple of years ago, like during the marketing for Jurassic World, and he was talking about like meeting with Spielberg and like this becoming like like a thing between them and stuff. So I, I actually haven't heard the Brad Bird thing. Well, I think you have to meet with Spielberg when you're going to be like stepping into something like this, but. Um, yeah, hold on. Brad Bird not directing Star Wars resulted in Colin Trevorrow directing Jurassic World. Interesting. Yeah. What were you going to say? So, because Brad Bird was supposed to direct Force Awakens. Interesting. And then, um, he and Frank Marshall and Steven Spielberg all kind of, like, found Trevorrow and, like, recommended him. So it was all this kind of, like, thing that Oh, so it was all the, all the, all the establishment. That makes me really sad, just because Trevorrow is just turning out to be more and more of a shit. Like, every interview that he says, that he's like, well, maybe women don't want to... um, He's a pretty dense figure. Yeah. 
director blockbuster. It's yeah. I, Did he say that? Is that a thing he was said? That Trevorrow. That was Trevorrow, I think, right? Yes. Yeah, he had some questionable someone, comments. Someone on, asked yikes. him what what he thought about there not being as many female directors directing big blockbuster franchises, and he's like, "Well, maybe women don't want to." Which is BS, because that actually leads to my point. Um, because I've noticed that a lot of these indie directors, I mean, if we're going to start off with where the problem originates from where the studio scout, it's from the festival circuit itself. Because on the festival circuit, you see a lot of talented women directors who bring like a unique vision that, you know, completely parallels and sometimes even surpasses some of these other indie directors that end up getting jobs. So they're already coming from the same playing field on the festival circuit, but for some reason the studios only approach, you know, the talented young white wunder kind. Whereas, you know, I see films like The Invitation, which was directed by a woman, um, The Love Witch, which was also directed by a woman, you know, great uh, testaments to filmmaking tension and just having that creative flair. Why aren't they getting signed onto big projects? You have Michelle McLaren, who has a better television career with, you know, Breaking Bad and Game of Thrones and other popular TV shows. Her career is more popular than the Russo brothers or, you know, Alan Taylor, who flunked out after Terminator Genesis and Thor of the Dark World. Uh, no disrespect to you, Alan, <laughs> but... He's directed a lot of good Mad Men and Game of Thrones episodes. Right. But it's just, they're already coming from the same playing field, so it's pretty obvious that there's a conscious decision-making on part of the studio system when they scout from the festival circuit, okay, we're going to look for the directors that remind us of younger selves. So you've exactly. got the... So you've got these it's ironic, producers. It's ironic because they're, they're, they're going with what they assume is like a safe but bold choice, and it just turns not into that. Mm-hmm. Right. They're like, well... Well, these people are like me, so they're probably going to do films like like I did, and then they don't. And that's when new blood is, is needed, and, and new faces and voices and talent. Like, I let's take a look at Ryan Coogler's career. C- Creed is ostensibly part of the franchise of the Rocky movies. It's its own thing. It's, a, it's wonderfully shot, amazingly edited and created. And it was basically a love letter to, to not only Ryan Coogler's love for the Rocky films, but also love for his father. So it's it's very much like a re, it's a reboot of uh, within the same universe of the Rocky movies. And before that, um, Ryan Coogler had only done Fruitvale Station. Fruitvale, Fruitvale Station, right? And so and that was that was a small indie picture, also starring Michael B. Jordan, and about a true story that happens in San Francisco on the BART train, and. That was, you know, a critical hit. Didn't make it a lot of money, but it was definitely noticed by a lot of people. And he came to Sylvester Stallone, saying, "Hey, I got, I got this idea for the, for the Rocky movie, for for a Creed movie," and they were like, "Let's do it." And so I want, and now he's directing Black Panther, and the black, and for, as we know, the Black Panther trailer was amazing, and so the movie's probably going to be also amazing, and so you know. Ryan Coogler, Ryan Coogler is a successful a success a success sorry <laughs> a success story for this indie director to franchise director and it's like it's a step in progress. I think yeah. Yes. Completely agreed and that is a great example of getting diversity in there and how you can ask people of color and women to do things and they will be successful and talented. Um I found the quote, and it goes back to what you were saying, Mike, is that Brad Bird is the one who recommended Trevorrow, and they brought Trevorrow in to meet Spielberg. So it was Brad Bird first, and Brad Bird was like, there's this guy that reminds me of me, and I'm just like, <laughs> what world, Brad Bird? You are so much more talented than this guy. He is. Colin Trevorrow couldn't make the See, Iron Giant Brad, or the Incredibles. No, uh, no. Brad Bird See, is lovely. That is my issue. I think I have more of an issue with the trend of plucking these indie directors out of obscure, obscurity to direct these franchises, then I think there are, are pros to it because while it does give them a bigger platform to you know work on a big franchise movie and then do their passion projects, um, it does target a very specific demographic of directors. And I think it also is kind of like the studio's way, like these big studio's ways of 
taking ownership of all these big creative voices and then pushing them under this umbrella that kind of I don't want to say squeezes out like the creative juices, but no, it does. It kind of does. It 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 brings them into the studio system, and we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording the episode. But it's an interesting kind of return to the old studio system of Hollywood, um, which was about like the studios having the uh, majority of the power over the stars, the directors. There was no really such thing as an auteur back then. Um, but after that, after like the new wave of Hollywood in the 60s and 70s, um, a lot of directors started to break out and become um, the, 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 they became the creative vision for the auteurs. films. Yeah, they were the auteurs. They, were, they had more power than the studios. Um, and now they're in charge. Yeah. Now it's interesting because those new Hollywood directors are the ones who are bringing it back into this Studio system. system. <laughs> and now you got, and then you get people like Lord Miller, or you know, like these like creative, fresh friend people, and they're like, they have to like tone down their style, or you know, fit their right. style to meet the needs of the of the of the studios. And it's really interesting to see this like evolution, this back and forth of cinema. I've been listening to a lot of you must be Re- you must remember this at work, and so I'm like deeply entrenched in like studio system history right now and this is all coming back to it's like the same story it's all about you know bringing in directors and studios have control and you know whether or not it's good or not you know because you know plenty of studio system movies are great yeah and it's it's not like it's not like they're vilified they're not like the villains of the story like right like I I love franchises. I will watch every superhero movie out there, most likely. <laughs> Even the bad ones. <laughs> Even the bad ones. And I'm, you know, the prime audience for that. But at the same time, I think it's a little bit intimidating that these studios and these big establishment directors are trying to preempt any new sort of creative wave by bringing in these um, interesting and promising directors under their fold and and under the excuse that, they remind me of me as they were young, so I'm going to put them under this big franchise and turn them into me. Right. Can we talk about Warner Brothers real sec- yes. for a quick second? <laughs> I think that's a good transition into that news. Yes. So um, there was a recent report that Warner Brothers uh, is going to be avoiding working with auteur directors who give who have final cut, um, unless they're a big name like Clint Eastwood or Christopher Nolan. So they're it's kind of implied that they're going to be focusing more on the big franchises, sequels, reboots, cinematic universes, and turning away from uh, original films or films that like are mostly like the director's vision, for example. Um, less lucrative films, let's be less honest. Less lucrative films. And as part of this whole shift away from mid-budget films. I have ranted about this before on our podcast, <laughs> but I really dislike that the mid-budget films are disappearing in in favor of just more cinematic universes. It, take, it takes away a lot of the variety at the box office, which we used to have even like in the peak of the studio system. There are all different kinds of movies and not just like one kind of genre, which we have now. Um, but, you know, like there are chances for genres within franchise films. We were talking about this earlier, too, that you, know, you can have a superhero film that's a Cold War-type spy thriller or a Western or something. But... I do not like the news that Warner Bros. is just moving away from our tours entirely. Yeah, right. It's not good. Mm-hmm. That's not good. Because they're, they're the ones who can give these directors a chance mm-hmm. and to make, to make, to either finance their films or distribute their films. You know, it's, there's not a lot of room for the mid-budget picture anymore. And it's really disheartening because <laughs> that's kind of what the movies I want to make are. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of mid-budget directors, mid-budget movie directors are retiring. Right. Um, you see David Lynch moving away from movies and turning to TV. You see, oh, who was the guy? Uh, not, Scors- not Scorsese. It was um, the one who did The Nick. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, no, Steven Soderbergh? No. Yeah, Soderbergh. Steven Soderbergh, yeah. yeah. Steven yes. Soderbergh um, announced that he was retiring from film. He's doing one more He's film now. He's done that now. a lot. And he's re- he said he's retiring from film a yes. lot, yeah. though. But, you know, it kind of is in, in line with this whole trend of him moving towards TV and away from film, although he's doing one last film again, so who knows if he's going to be back or not. Michael Mann yeah. has been doing a lot more television now mm-hmm. in his career. And I think that's probably where these auteurs are going, is television. You can do auteur television now, which yeah. is something you couldn't have done 20 years ago. Dave, Twin Peaks was the first one that really do it. 
Anya, you have a face. <laughs> <laughs> I um I just don't like auteur theory. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we should just let that live in the past where it belongs. <laughs> I think we should highlight distinct, diverse, unique voices. But I think auteur theory is just a way for elitist white male filmmakers to pretend that they're so great and they're better Damn. than everyone and they're not a, they're not a, it's not a team collaboration it's not like hundreds of people work on a film and make it what it is um so i think auteur theory should just go away forever. i actually do understand that sentiment because but it, but it is all about me Anya. i think that that's the thing is it is all about me no, I'm just <laughs> no. um and but i so i think like i'm i'm like struck like doesn't mean Warner Brothers is going to stop going after <clears throat> unique filmmakers or, like, auteur. Like, so that's why, like, I don't really know what it's going to look like going forward because <clears throat> I first feel off that auteurs are a dying breed anyway. Mm, and, interesting. Um, now, when you say, when you when you mean auteurs, do you mean writer-directors, like people who write and direct their own movies? No, I mean white men who think that they're the author of their film. What about Fincher? <laughs> also, yeah, but Fincher is part of the old guard. It's true. Like, so that's what I'm saying. Is like, I feel like auteurs, all the auteurs that we think of now are older, mm-hmm. and I feel like there's no really like young auteurs. And the people you might say, I would say, no, they just have a strong identity and a strong voice. I don't think they're auteurs because auteurs stemming from like France and like film elitism <laughs> is whatever. Um, <laughs> I just really don't like that whole like high horse. Also, death of the author, to be honest. So that's um, an interesting point. I mean, I like the idea of the auteur because I like to think that you know, outside of a movie being a collaborative experience, I like to think that there's some sort of singular vision for a film and a singular right. message. But can't that just be strong leadership and like a distinct voice? Like, I just think the idea of the auteur brings with it so much like baggage and elitism mm. that I think is damaging to diverse voices because I think auteur basically shuts out women and people of color. Interesting. I think auteur is a white male club basically. I've actually never thought of it that way but and so I think that's why it needs to go away and we need to dismantle it and start thinking of strong singular voices in different ways going forward. Mm. So you don't want the term auteur to be thrown around anymore. No, because I think it brings preconceived notions of what an auteur is, who an auteur can be. Mm-hmm. And unless it's one of those things where you reclaim the term. I think there can be some way to reclaim it because I like the, despite it, all the um, baggage and notions that come with the auteur, I do like the idea of the auteur having a singular vision for a film and bringing that to the screen with the help of others, of course. Um, it could be not even a, a director. It could be a writer now. We could be seeing the the um, revolution of the writers because they are getting a lot more power lately as well. It's as true. in the case of the Han Solo situation. Exactly. And in television, too. They are basically... Oh, they control television. Yeah, they control TV, which is really oh, interesting. Yeah, showrunners? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. No one cares about directors in TV. Yep. <laughs> That's true. It's the exact opposite, which is fascinating. Yeah, directors in TV don't get their due credit. Mm-mm. And unless they make a movie. Like, that's interesting. Because, like, we can, we've t- we talked earlier about Michelle McLaren. She's made a ton of Amazing television. television. And, like, a lot of directors in TV make a lot of... Um, I mean, they have to... It, you know, not all directors direct every episode of a, of a television season. But, like, a lot of them will do... like. In, at least in prestige television, like the, they're brought on board as part of the creative process, and a lot of them will direct most of the episodes. Um, Mimi Letter of The Leftovers directed a lot of episodes of The Leftovers, and she was great. And like she gave a style to um, to like the back half of the of the show. Um, so there's there's a, a interesting topics about auteur auteurs in (laughs) movies versus auteurs in television because I feel like there's more diverse there could be more diversity in television um, in terms of voices and representation and it like as a filmmaker it's like it it behooves me to hear that you're you're 
you're tired of the term auteur Anya, but at the same time, <laughs> I, I get it. <laughs> I took a whole class on auteur theory but with uh, Professor Middens from AU, and we, we studied Alfonso Cuaron the entire time, as well as like doing our own research project on our own auteur which I did mine on George Lucas, so that tells you about as much as you need to know about me as ever, anything else. But it was really interesting watching like every uh, every Quaron movie that he has a singular vision about how he makes films. And I mean, you can say the same thing about like Guillermo del Toro. Yeah, but I mean, and then that's the idea of like, okay, so an auteur is just a person with a singular vision. My mm. problem is you say the that idea term, of the and. It doesn't just stand on its own as like ah, Guillermo del Toro has a singular vision. There's so much more that comes with it. Comes with and I think the history, that's the problem. It's the right? manic pixie dream tour. <laughs> you let it's like you like you hate the idea of the tour, but not the tour itself. It's still like the re- it's like reverse. Oh, oh my god! <laughs> I'm back in oh critical god, pro- approach to cinema class. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is what this this episode is today. Yeah. Um, but do you guys have anything else you want to add to this discussion? Uh, just that I hope movies keep being fun. <laughs> you know, whatever it takes to get them to be fun and exciting, let's do it. Whatever provides an engaging experience at the cinema, if it's the director or the studio that has that vision, I'm all for it. Yes. All right. And I think that's a great way to wrap up our discussion on... I don't know how to like correctly summarize this. Directors. Directors. <laughs> directors in Hollywood. and Hollywood. Directors and their Direc- art. <laughs> directors, studios, and art. <laughs> Let's move on to the last segment of our episode. I really, 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 really like you. But I need to tell you something. Wilby, why don't you go first? Okay. So, I briefly mentioned it earlier in the episode, but I've been listening to a lot of You Must Remember This um, uh, at work, you know, just, like, on the on the side, podcasting while working. And it's great. I'm learning so much about the about Hollywood and, like, you know, you know each episode is about, like, a person uh, in the Hollywood studio system during a certain age of, like, Hollywood. So, like, whether it's about the 30s or the 40s or the 50s there was an entire series devoted to Charles Manson and the Hollywood around that at the time um, right now I'm, I'm at the point where they're talking about the blacklist that was really that's really exciting it's a little, I'm learning a lot of things I think specifically I'm on the Arthur Miller episode um, and so with that I've been rewatching a lot of movies like The Aviator and uh, actually just The Aviator um, because it deals with Howard Hughes and the student system and so that so I, it's, it's, I'm just entrenched in Hollywood history right now so that's what I'm really liking so this is a perfect episode for you then <laughs> yeah that's just why I really wanted to talk about it <laughs> alright Anya what do you really like this week oh hello <gasps> did you so watch it this week did you watch it I watched the John Mulaney and Nick Kroll Broadway play Oh Hello because it is finally on Netflix um, it's a play that I've been following for a long time, um, before it was on Broadway to when it was on Broadway, um, especially as a big fan of John Mulaney. Um, and basically just what it is, is it's an hour and a half play of John Mulaney and Nick Kroll playing their long-standing characters, Gil Faison and, uh, George St. Geekland, and they're basically just these old white dudes in New York, and their thoughts and feelings about everything and it's hilarious and it's just really clever and unique and John Mulaney and Nick Kroll are hysterical and they have such great chemistry um so they recorded two showings of their Broadway play only one is on Netflix right now the other one apparently is supposed to go up because every different show and they had a different like celebrity guest come up for like 10 minutes and improv with them and so the one on Netflix is Steve Martin but they also recorded one with Michael J. Fox which they said will be on Netflix at some point as well so I watched that this week and it was hysterical and I love it and theater is so great I'm gonna just keep pushing theater on you guys (laughs) until you love it as much as I do I love how on the nose meta it was. Like it was about that. Like this is this is the scene in which a character gets a phone call. Like I love that moment. Like it was so it was it was like breaking down theater tropes, but also wildly funny at the same time. It's hysterical. 
I was guffawing the entire time I watched it. I have not seen it. Probably won't see it soon, because... Oh, maybe I'll see it. I don't know. Maybe I'll watch musicals. It's 90 minutes. It's not a musical. It's a play. Oh. It's a a play. Okay. I mean, it's basically just Nick Kroll and John Mulaney doing stand-up as characters. That actually Mm -hmm. sounds lovely. Yeah. Interesting. And the characters are hysterical, and they pronounce weird words funny, and it's... Really oh, it's great. like Schmidt on New Girl, but like to the tenth degree. It's so funny. Oh, okay. I don't know if I would like it then, because Schmidt on New Girl is a little bit. He wears on well, me sometimes. There's not the same character. I actually think that's not a great comparison. <laughs> I wish I watched don't, don't, don't think of Schmidt. Well, I literally just, I literally just meant in terms of pronouncing words. Funny. Oh, okay, okay. All right, Mike. What do you really like this week? Okay. Um, well, I've been raving about it on my Twitter all week, but. HT and I actually did see War for the Planet of the Apes on Monday night, and I'm going to keep this short because I know if I start talking about this movie, I will never shut up, and this is going to be a two-hour episode. All I say is, oh my god, that was my favorite film of 2017. Um, Just great, rich, emotional tension, amazing visual effects. If it does not win Best Visual Effects at the Oscars, there's no justice in Hollywood. Andy Serkis deserves an Oscar just for bringing that textured performance behind a CGI ape. Um, Steve Zahn, incredible in this film. Um, This is a really dark, bleak film that's incredibly heavy on its thematics, but it's also, out of all the new apes films, the funniest and most adorable film. A lot of it thanks to <laughs> if that makes sense. And his, like, North Face. Um, Woody Harrelson is also great in it. I mean, granted, he chews a lot of scenery by just standing there, and it just looks kind of ridiculous, but I feel he serves its purpose. But it's such a great time. It foils your typical blockbuster expectations, just FYI, but I believe it's something a lot better than what it's being marketed as. It's a lot more personal, but it's just as epic that what you're looking for for in a movie that's War for the Planet of the Apes. So keep that in mind. I saw something, someone say something interesting on Twitter that all of these apes movies are mistitled and should be switched around. <laughs> so I think the second one should have been War and this one should have been Rise. Rise. The first, because first, first one should have been Dawn, yeah. Because technically Dawn comes before the Rise. Yeah, so. and also like the second movie was more of a war film than this one was. I mean, Well, it's kind of like it, okay, to so bring it back to Star Wars, it's kind of like the beginning of the, it's kind of like the beginning of the Clone Wars, where it, it's like the first battle of of the war, right? And then Revenge of the Sith began with the last battle of the Clone right. Wars. But yeah. Oh yeah. It also just one final note on this film: it knows how to juggle like three distinct genres in a movie about intelligent apes. It starts off as a war film, then it turns into a Clint Eastwood style western road trip movie. Then it turns into back to a war film, into Bridge on the River Kwai and The Great Escape, and then like a religious epic. You'll see some very Arabia. <laughs> so just a great experience. It still weighs heavily on my mind, as you've noticed from all my annoying tweets about I've been it. But about it for two weeks now. It's been w- barely a week, <laughs> six days. So yeah, that feels like two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> so that's Mike's favorite thing of this week. I really, really liked it. Oh, it was All right, HT. Very good. Um, so I, this is another movie that I went to see with Mike um, a couple of days before we saw War for the Planet of the Apes. Wamp. Wamp. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, trying to, uh, I'm trying to abbreviate it. It's called War Apes. <laughs> it's Woofpa. Woofpa. <laughs> <laughs> um, we went to see It Comes at Night, which has been out for about a week now. And it is kind of an anti-horror film. It is not at all the horror film that it has been marketed as by A24, which is a great studio. Um, But it's this really interesting, bleak, post-apocalyptic portrait of nihilism that really comments on how we glorify nihilism. It, It says a lot about, like... Paranoia, and paranoia, and man's own destructiveness. That I really wanted The Walking Dead to talk about. This is a weird comparison, but like there was a scene in It Comes at Night that paralleled for me the moment that I stopped watching Walking Dead because that was the moment where I was like, why do I have 
any sympathy for these characters and they don't receive any consequences or repercussions for it. Whereas It Comes at Night really um, lingers on that. And it's really, in, it's, it's very interesting. It's beautifully shot, very eerie. Um, definitely probably one of my favorite films of the, of the year that I've, saw, I've seen this far. Oh, yeah. Um, Joel Edgerton is amazing in it. Um, the actor who plays his son the is The actor really is really good. good. He's new. He's a newcomer, but I really like him. Um, what's his name? I'm going to look him up because he was that great. Something Harris Jr., I know Kelvin that. Harrison Jr. Harrison Jr. Kelvin Harris? Mm-hmm. Kelvin Harrison. <laughs> not that guy. No. <laughs> not, not, not the singer? No, no, no not, not, not Kelvin else. Harris. It's Kelvin Harrison. Oh, Kelvin, like J.J. Abrams, Kelvin. I, I was thinking Kelvin, like the measuring system, but also that, yeah, for yeah. sure. <laughs> yeah, but J.J. Abrams uses that all, in all his movies. Okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. But, yeah, he's phenomenal. Um, yeah, I recommend the movie. I do not like horror films, and I absolutely loved it. So even if you do not like horror movies, you will like this film. It is a little bit scary at parts. But mostly about, tense. It's mostly tense. It's very suspenseful. It's mostly scary in how scary humanity is, you know? I mean, it's interesting to see a horror film that the main critique is that fear is the monster. Fear is the destructive element of humanity. Exactly. Although, if you go in... There's plenty of Batman movies about that. (laughs) (laughs) If you go in expecting a horror movie, though, you will hate it. Because there was a woman behind me, like, ten minutes before the movie ended, she was like, oh, I hate this film. What? This isn't The Conjuring. This is the anti-Conjuring. Yeah. An anti-horror movie, like I said before. I recommend it. (laughs) <laughs> Trey Edward Schultz is the director and he does a phenomenal job um, Mike would recommend Krisha who, um, w- which was his first movie I haven't seen it but it's on Amazon Prime yes yeah. so yeah It Comes at Night excellent film alright so that's our episode for the week if you guys have any thoughts on directors and studio films or Warford of the Planet of the Apes or It Comes at Night or Oh Hello or you must remember this. <laughs> you must remember this. Great podcast by Karina Longworth. Definitely come chat with us. And where can they do that, Willoughby? You can find us on Facebook if you search for us there. We're also on Twitter at Falcon Podcast. Our blog is millennialfalconpodcast.wordpress.com. You can find us on SoundCloud, or you can rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes and the Google Play. Um, and where can they find you guys on the internet? You can find me at hchanbui on Twitter. You can find me at Anya Crittenton on Twitter. Mike, where can they find you? mselengo91 on Twitter. And you can find me at Willoughby Dobbs on Twitter. All right. Thanks, Mike, for joining us. Thank and you for thank me. you all for joining us today. Yay. Bye. Bye.